Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. It is Thursday, June 8th. Oil prices opening a little bit softer in Asia this morning. If you like a sort of a after the initial sugar rush, or shall we call it the lollipop rush on Monday morning, uh, the prices have sort of sobered back to kind of pre-OPEC meeting levels of, uh, at least on Brent in the sort of mid-70s or give or take a little bit. Uh, everybody has to have a chance to comment on the big news of the week. It is Thursday, but the momentum out of the big OPEC decision is still lingering. And I'd really welcome everybody's views on that because, of course, the legacy of it is this sort of... Uh, uh, question mark now of the 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 Saudi one million barrel a day cut uh, the sort of uh, the only really tangible uh, takeaway from the meeting in the, in the in the immediate sense was this commitment by Saudi to unilaterally cut their oil supply in July next month by a further one million barrels a day for one month uh, and and the outlook for that continuing i suppose is where the big the next big question mark arises but i welcome everybody's view we've got to sort of literally span the globe this morning let's start out in the in the wilds of asia uh, far uh, Asia, in terms of uh, Peter Maguire uh, in uh, Sydney, uh, Peter, Chief Executive Officer of XM Australia. Peter, your thoughts four or five days later, having a sober reflection on the weekend drama? Well, good afternoon, Sean. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, fellow guests. Greetings from Sydney. Yeah, it popped heavily on Monday morning, and I thought, here we are off to the races, up four and a half percent. And it's, you know, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock Sydney time. So where you are, it's like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Dubai. And then if you're further east, or, or pardon me, further west, then, um, you know, you're probably seeing that late Sunday night. And it popped and it popped heavy. And I thought, wow, you know, here we go. And the shorts would have got absolutely spanked. And it gave up a little bit of that uh, later in the day. It came back about a percent and a half or so. And it's still a re reasonably very strong Monday. Where I sit here, you know, as you mentioned, 76.80, Sean, for Brent, 72 and a quarter, 72.40 for WTI. I, I'm curious to see how uh, Saudis play out. I understand that the UAE or the Emirates were the winners in a lot of ways. They got an extra 200,000 barrels a day of production. And the other side of it, Russia didn't get crimped. There was no real talk there. So I, I sit here and go, um, as far as my understanding is, Saudis want seven, uh, 80 to 85 to 90 and see if we can do it. US dollars coming back, Sean, at 104 and it's giving up a bit of heat, but we've got a big week ahead of us next week. Maybe uh, Jay Powell and his team might ratchet it up again. Narendra Taneja, India's leading energy expert. Narendra, your thoughts a few days later, uh, do you think OPEC Plus comes out of this meeting? Now, obviously, a number of years this OPEC Plus has existed. Does it look strong and robust to you, OPEC Plus, or is this a, a weaker uh, OPEC Plus? Uh, your thoughts? Well, uh, OPEC Plus to me looks like weak and divided. Uh, because Russia is, of course, you know, has got this great opportunity to expand in Asian markets and big Asian markets like India and China. And of course, beyond India and China, also in Turkey and Pakistan and, and uh, several other geographies. So for them, it's all about market share now and at the same time revenues, you know. Uh, but for Saudi Arabia, on the one hand, Saudi Arabia wants oil prices to be in the region of $85 uh, per barrel minimum. And at the same time, they want to protect their market share in geographies like India and China and beyond, of course. 
So it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a struggle for them. On the one hand, you want prices at 85, and on the other hand, you also want to secure market share. And the fact is on the, both these points, they're losing. They're losing market share in many Asian geographies in particular, and they're also not able to uh, basically bring the prices where they want to push the prices up. So I think it's, it's a bit of a struggle for them. OPEC itself is a divided house. OPEC plus Russia is moving in two different directions. And uh, so therefore, uh, you know, importers such as India, I mean, it's a kind of um, a little bit more comfortable uh, spot in the sense that when the price is not really where Saudi Arabia and particular Kuwait, Iraq, they want it to be. And at the same time, you know, uh, uh, you know, India has this possibility to buy oil from other geographies, uh, more particularly Russia, uh, because it works out well for the economy. So I think OPEC plus right now, we don't know about tomorrow. But uh, right now it's weak and divided, and OPEC uh, also uh, kind of looks weak as we, you know, when we look at it today. But uh, this is not to say that it's going to stay like this forever. Uh, this will change very soon. Uh, the ground reality, especially in terms of geopolitics, changes, and also the overall demand for for crude uh, uh, globally. So there are many other factors. But as of today, yes, weak and uh, very confused. Dr. Rad Al-Qadiri, Managing Director, Energy, Climate and Resources at the Eurasia Group in Washington, D.C. Rad, your thoughts a few days later, divided a week, as Narendra indicates, do you concur? Surely Saudi Arabia didn't go to Vienna. I, I would be surprised if they got the outcome. They went to Vienna, brought the whole OPEC circus together for the outcome that was delivered and leave OPEC or leave Vienna carrying a very heavy bucket on their own. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, hard, it's hard to work out what the Saudis did want in Vienna in some senses. Um, but, you know, very clearly, you know, it, it's trying to balance that, that pressure of very short-term oil markets, something that they've tried to avoid getting involved in sort of in the past, because really they don't have, they don't have very many sort of agile tools to be able to influence sentiment in the very short term versus, you know, I think keeping the organization together and, and really taking advantage of where they are. I'm not sure I would have characterized them as necessarily weak and divided. I think there have been times when OPEC has been sort of far more internally divided than it is right now. Well, OPEC plus really is the focus here yeah, rather than I OPEC think, itself. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the, the point there is that you know, while the Russians may not be complying in terms of cuts, they can't actually step in and take new market share because there are ceilings on their production. So I think, you know, it's not to say that OPEC plus is, is a house that or an engine that's working, um, you know, an engine that's working smoothlessly. But I think, you know, that ability to manage Russia in the short term, where I think we are is, you know, in an odd sort of twilight zone. Um, you know, fundamentals probably didn't point at the carnage that we saw in um, May in terms of prices. I mean, that sort of $10 drop or sort of almost $10 drop on average prices that we saw, you know, can't really be related to sort of strictly the fundamentals. Sentiment clearly is playing a part. And I think that's the struggle that Saudi Arabia has. And that's where the million barrels a day comes in. But this is a market that's, you know, betting against higher prices. Um, you know, I, you and I, Sean, have been to enough OPEC meetings to remember a million barrel a day cut sort of would be sort of seen as somewhat bullish in the market. And, and as Peter mentioned, it sort of, you know, it took off briefly and then turned out to be a damp script. So it's, it's difficult to see what Saudi Arabia can do next and what OPEC plus can do next. 
I think it's going to have in what the markets are waiting for definitive signs that you know demand isn't going to crash um, and demand isn't going to remain so it isn't going to be weaker in the future and I think it, until you get those definitive signs I mean it's it's the opposite of every cloud has a silver lining in this case every silver lining has a cloud and and I think the market is focused very much on the cloud not the silver Peter, Rod makes a good point there. I mean, ultimately, this market, it would appear, is not really focused or concerned about supply right now. There seems to be enough oil around for everybody. Uh, this is a question around demand. Where is demand going? Well, when you ask that, Sean, I mean, I'm just looking at some notes here. China's May crude imports jumped 12 to 12.2 million barrels a day, up 17% from April. Yeah. And up 12% year on year. So let's park that. But that's not, you know, that's not a negative number. That's up 12%. That's one hell of a big shoot to the upside. So there's that side of it there. Now, if we look at iron oil consumption and, you know, their import, and that's a big concern to Australia, but it's a fairly uh, extensive overview of the world when you're thinking of far as steel, their biggest, I think their biggest month ever was March or April, China from Australia. So from an import sector. So either someone's not telling the true numbers or um, I think I think appetite is still very strong, Sean. And I think Saudis building on exactly what Rad said and to some point Narendra, we are sitting here scratching our, scratching our heads, and I think so are the Saudis. They're looking, they just want to see oil prices. I don't think there's any way out of it with another 10 bucks strapped to it at least. And I think we're going to achieve that over this summer period. Narendra, sort of building on that sense of optimism, the bullish uh, outlook, we, India, India's stock markets are heading for an, another record level uh, uh, with foreign inflows looking quite healthy. Uh, we have the Japanese uh, stock in Nikkei index equity markets looking very well as do as well, uh, also getting back to near record highs. There is enough glass half full to look at that says demand is still solid here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at uh, India in particular, from Delhi, Bombay, Chennai, Bangalore, in fact, from any part of the country, uh, it uh, it looks very optimistic. And if you look at the projections for the next quarter or the next year, or even the little bit medium term, like next two years, it all looks pretty good. And therefore, the demand is likely to go up. And, uh, and at the same time, the way we look at China from New Delhi, we think that China is recovering and China is doing reasonably well. And within next six months, we, I mean, the RS own analysis is that probably the demand will be back to more or less normal in China. And the same may go for uh, a few other, uh, you know, countries in our part of the world, which are important in terms of demand for oil. So overall picture from here is, is good. But at the same time, I mean, at the same time, we find that, you know, what Saudi Arabia is, is trying to do at OPEC or for that matters, a couple of other countries to push the prices artificially up. Um, our sense is this is, uh, is not, you know, this kind of model is not sustainable. I mean, they might have their own need that Saudi Arabia, we see reports Saudi Arabia wants oil to be 85, 90 dollars per barrel in order to sustain the kind of internal social and economic reforms and the changes they want to bring about. But why should the world pay for it? And uh, the second question is that, you know, the view from New Delhi is that there is no shortage of uh, you know, oil uh, in the world. So there's plenty of oil available, there's plenty of gas available. And at the same time, we all know that, you know, 
OPEC may try and OPEC may slide, but we think that Saudi Arabia is a little bit probably frustrated when it comes to OPEC plus because uh, Russia has to look after its own interests in the same way Saudi Arabia is trying to look after its own interests, or for that matter, Iraq and the United Arab Emirates. So I think we understand this reality being a large, probably the largest importer of crude oil on the planet, uh, you know, uh, uh, when you look at the emerging economies. And our dependence on at the same time, you know, imported oil has now gone up to 87.5%. So, uh, so for us to, uh, you know, watch all these things uh, with a microscope, is strategically very important, which we do with regard to Saudi Arabia in particular, how the internal politics and the, how the internal dynamics, for instance, play out at OPEC meetings and for that their you know, relationship with Russia and other exporters. So I think our sense is right now, for the next two, three months, nothing to worry about. Saudi Arabia is unlikely to succeed, artificially push the price. They may go on for this production cut and all that. But these are all kind of tricks we have known for a long time or the maneuvers we have known a long time. But there is no discomfort right now in Delhi and uh, being the third largest importer, con consumer of oil. But, uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, it's important to see what, how things go in Ukraine. And we are more worried about Ukraine, further sanctions, secondary sanctions, and uh, supplies and those kind of things. And of course, the refining uh, challenges. So those challenges are kind of bothering us. Otherwise, at least for the next three months, we think the picture looks reasonably okay. It's very difficult Rad, to say what happened after six months and so on. Sure. Uh, Rad, your thoughts on, on this uh, question of does Saudi Arabia risk sort of getting itself down a one-way street on becoming the swing producer again, uh, that this commitment to the one million barrels prices remain soft? They're kind of locked into continuing with it. I mean, there's, that's always the danger, and that, that, that's my point about sort of the, the lack of agility, I think, in terms of, you know, trying to battle short-term market sentiment. And the problem with battling the shorts is, you know, those shorts can move very, very quickly. In, in Saudi case, it's taking on or putting on, on oil, you know, that takes weeks to hit the market and, you know, is a very blunt tool. But more generally, I think, to your point, yes, there is a risk. I mean, they can only go so far, and they'll only want to go so far alone. I and mean, I think, you know, the lolly, it may have been described as a lollipop. I think it was more intended as a cattle prod um, to try and, you know, shift market sentiment and, and, and sort of galvanize market sentiment and really picking up on some of the points that Peter made that, you know, it's not all bad news. And yet markets, you know, seem to dismiss anything that suggests that demand, if not extremely robust, is nonetheless growing um, in certain parts of in, in certain parts of, of China and Ch certain parts of the Chinese economy. And you know, while we've had poor numbers out of the U.S. in terms of gasoline and distillate inventories up to recently, there's not really been a sign that um, you know the U.S. or or indeed Europe was a drag on 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 demand. So you know, a lot of it has been about anticipated bad news, and I think the Saudis tried to get ahead of that. But you can only do that a few times before you uh, get really caught as the swing producer. And you know, their memories uh, are, are still there from the '80s when. Um, you know, they've always vowed that isn't the place they wanted to be. And OPEC, and OPEC Plus, and this is where I, I do agree with Navindra, OPEC Plus's sort of great success over the past 24 months has been its cohesion. Um, and has been oh, do you think that do you share the view that it is potentially fra I mean, not fractured is obviously a big term, but ultimately there is a divergence here uh, between this Russia's needs and an appetite and the Saudis 
And are the Saudis taking the hit here just for that cohesion piece rather than um, for their own real economic interest? No, I think this is every country in OPEC plus operates on the basis of their own domestic economic and financial interests. Um, you know, that's why it's not a cartel. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a group of fellow travelers um, that agree on some points and disagree on others, but ultimately will be driven by their own sort of domestic needs. And, you know, I think, yes, at this moment in time, there's probably sort of greater tension than there was sort of a few months ago, purely and simply because, you know, Russia's Russia's doing what, you know, any country in, in Russia's situation was going to do. It's it's trying to capitalize on its natural resources to deliver revenue when it's under sanctions globally um, and other revenue ap- uh, avenues of revenue have been cut off. So, I mean, politically, it, it's it's understandable and it does lead to that divergence. What I think OPEC has done with voluntary cuts, you know, or at least Saudi has done with voluntary cuts, whether it be April or this time, is try to sort of circumvent that that pressure in the short term, in the very short term. Again, it's it's designed to prod markets, but I don't think it'll do it too many more. I actually don't think it'll do it again. It may keep this cut in place, but it's not going to want to get sort of down to eight million barrels a day of production or lower simply um, to to if if the Russians and others are benefiting from that. Peter, uh, the other issues you mentioned in your earlier comments there, which have sort of fallen to the background with the debt ceiling crisis and now the OPEC decision sort of grabbing the headlines. But there is this thing called inflation and and and, and interest rates tightening. Uh, you mentioned the Fed meeting next week, the, the possibility of this tightening uh, further uh, and the impact. What's your views on that? Well, I've just run Australia in the last couple of days, Sean, to bring everyone up to speed. We we had uh, April inflation running at 6.3, and everyone was saying that we'd probably see a five handle, and I think the most consensus was five, nine, maybe a six. Well, it shot to the upside 6.8. So that really hit everyone between the eyes. Then on Wednesday, uh, pardon me, Tuesday, um, we had in a rate rise of 25 basis points, our highest since April of 2012. And then yesterday we had GDP come out at 0.2. So it's really, it's soft here and unemployment numbers are starting to um, hit from three and a half to about 3.7. So there's, so that's an, that's an interesting um, examination of Australia. If I look at the US, the inflate, obviously the inflation story, if I look at through the lens in Australia, it's not under control. It's actually getting worse. So uh, I'm, I want to see the numbers come out of the states. I think that Jay Powell's got his hands full and there's a lot of backlash across mid-America and Main Street with the inflation and the cost of goods and what, what the consumer is experiencing. And if Jay Powell doesn't move and they're saying it's going to be about 80% probability of no rate rise, then that 20%, I think I'm going to sit in the 20% bank that'll probably see a rate rise by the Fed. So what do, what do you then, think, what do you make of this new term skip, the skip language uh, that uh, the Fed will uh, pause for uh, one meeting because they have a very quickly a, another meeting in in uh, in July, instead of a two month gap now, there's only another month to the next meeting. Well, that's right, Sean, and everyone's saying that they might be that skip, but I, I wouldn't be surprised that, that you see an uplift. But, you know, I think it's just, the market, the US dollars come under a little bit of pressure to the downside. It's back at 104. Um, there's nervousness across some of those big stocks. Really, it's only the 10 out of the uh, out of the S&P 500 that are performing incredibly well. There's 490 that are languishing, but um, they're just such monsters that are spitting out cash 
by the handful. So the, the traders are looking at um, an interesting week ahead. That's all I'll and of say. Of course, you had the very robust jobs numbers also last Friday, uh, which yep. kind of got smothered by the OPEC weekend. But ultimately, there's a lot of indicators there that would, uh, you know, give give some. You would think more fuel than 20 percent for another rate hike. Well, that's right. It went from 190. Consensus was 190. It shot to the upside 339,000. So it really hit everyone between the eyes. But people are even saying, well, it's people getting second, third and fourth jobs. So there's, there's <laughs> well, well, there you are. So it's there, there's a, there's many ways to un, unpack or, or, or pull apart the artichoke. So it's yeah. it's an interesting test case at the moment. And uh, I think this summer is going to be quite fascinating for the U.S., Let's go to the survey question, which sort of touches on some of the themes we were uh, talking about in, in in summary. We sort of have spent much of the first half of this year with this year of two halves narrative where Asian demand is expected to drive up oil prices in the second half with the cycle of the annual calendar of demand going into the next winter. Um, do you still subscribe to the year of two halves narrative where Asian demand will drive up oil prices above $80 uh, in the second half, at uh, what point you might say December 30th. Yes. But uh, nonetheless, uh, does the second half, this year of two halves narrative still uh, still survive? Um, Narendra, I wanted to just take a moment to just go a little bit local in uh, India, because I think it is important. Uh, the rainy, the raining season, the monsoon and, and its indications uh, headline out over the last few days that the, it's started a little bit light, that uh, not as much rain as you need. What's the outlook there, do you think, and how important is that? Well, if you go by Met Office, uh, depending which one, the public sector, the private sector, the projections are that it's going to be monsoon is going to be okay, and uh, while the, you know some people say that it might not be okay, so we'll get probably seventy percent, eighty percent, not hundred percent. But uh, it looks like if you go by the kind of developments we have seen in terms of weather the last five weeks, it looks like that probably is not going to be normal monsoon. Which means that when when we don't have a normal monsoon, the demand for diesel in particular goes up because then diesel is used for producing power, electricity, and in societies and factories and in far-flung areas, and even in the suburbs of the big cities. And also the demand for, for petrol goes up. So that's the kind of, you know, uh, if you go by the experience of the past. So, and which basically means months of July and August and half of September, probably the demand for petroleum products will go up from the known transport sector. And that means by the factories and the, you know, uh, captive uh, power generation, so and so forth. So I think that's my assessment given, given the reality. But then you see that only God knows or the nature knows. So we don't know. But it looks like there probably is not going to be an absolutely normal monsoon. We'll probably get there maybe, we'll achieve maybe 75%, 80%. Some people say less than 70%, depending what part of the country, because we are a huge, uh, huge geography, as you know. And just on the point also of the the India Central Bank keeping interest rates unchanged at 6.5%, I mean, it's still a very vibrant economy, uh, inflation still present, but uh, rates being held unchanged in India. Your thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, uh, I mean, I'm among those who've been against uh, Central Bank trying to, you know, uh, basically following um, <laughs> Fed and increasing the interest rate, because what we need is more credit offtake. And what we need is at the same time to push demands mainly in the rural area 
and that whenever there is a kind of you know a, a growth in demand we see the demand for petroleum product also goes up and especially in areas outside the big cities and northern part of the country eastern part of the country in particular so i think that's a good decision by the by the central bank because it's basically be the interest rates are going to be kind of more manageable and people are going to borrow more for you know construction housing and so on and so forth and also for you know uh, expanding their businesses so i i personally feel the time has come and the rbi central bank must think over it and at the same time to the extent possible try to reduce interest rate a little bit because that is what the economy is basically now crying for economy is doing very well but i think you know there are companies and there are entities waiting for central bank to do something so the interest rate can can come down a little bit and because right now many companies find borrowing uh, from uh, you know europe and other, uh, foreign markets is actually cheaper so uh, because the dollar is always you know so there are many other factors yeah. but my own sense is economy is doing well and indian central bank doesn't necessarily need to follow what they do in the united states we have right. to got our own thinking we don't necessarily to follow them like a, you know like a tribe or like a, like a lab so okay. the demand indian economy demands interest rates to be kept at this level for a few weeks coming few weeks and then they start going south and it's still i mean it's still uh, it, it is a uh, a high enough level 6.5% so i think oh, it, yeah. it looks like it 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 would do its job uh, rada wanted to get your thoughts uh, again the other big story that seems to be you know literally burning in the background uh, the war in ukraine russia's invasion of ukraine occupation of ukraine continues with devastating consequences uh what's the, it's hard to read the current status. This sort of—it's a bit like waiting for the recession. We're waiting for this counterinsurgency, and then we had this terrible uh, uh, destruction of the dam over the last few days. Where do you think this is going, and its its ramifications? I mean, I think what you're seeing is—you know—this war settling into a, a very worrying pattern that sort of could mean that it goes on for some period of time. So I think you know anticipation of the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is still there. Has it started? Has it not started? Russia taking more extreme measures, obviously, and, uh, you know, as in the background, threatening even further escalation. I mean, I think the takeaway from this in terms of global markets is this is not a problem that's going to go away anytime soon. And in terms of, you know, any notion that you're going to get a significant breakthrough one side or the other seems somewhat fanciful at this moment in time. Um, and, you know, it's so it, it, you know, it settles in and it remains both a disruptive element, but also a, a drag on various elements. So all that we've discussed this morning in terms of oil and in terms of, you know, Russian oil policy, you know, so long as the war goes on, there's very little to see or very little chance that you're going to see Russia not try and put as many barrels on the market as it possibly can because it needs the revenue. Um, and similarly, you know, it does have even longer term ramifications in terms of how it's changing the pattern of flows globally. And once those get sticky, um, you know, you, you know, could, could conceivably moving into a world of dual pricing for oil, moving into a world where politics, not markets, is driving the direction of flows. And I think all of those sort of bear thinking out, probably not on a, on a daily podcast, but um, you know, from from a very short term point of view, nothing seems to sort of point to a breakthrough on one side or the other. Just simply, and where, just uh, given that you're in Washington and and the U.S. election, the presidential election is slowly heating up there now with all of the Republican candidates more or less in the race. Where does the 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 Ukraine, the sustainability of the Ukraine? 
defense and the Ukrainian, the Western NATO position uh, intersect with the U.S. elections? Is it an immediate sentiment of change or is it how do you see those two coexisting now in the coming months as the election narrative heats up? Rob, you know, being a renowned cynic, I think it all comes down to money, Sean. And ultimately, that's where it's going to play out. You know, the debate is going to be, you know, continuously how much money should Ukraine get? How much aid should Ukraine get? How much, you know, of how much defense support should the Ukraine get and how much of it the U.S. should pay for? And I think, you know, obviously there are parts of the far right in, in the U.S. that have questioned on, on the Republican side that have questioned U.S. support for Ukraine and, and you know, whether that's a priority or not. I think the backlash indicates that sort of the general feeling is still one that, you know, it's an important it's an important issue to stand up to. And it's an important issue for the U.S. to support the Ukraine moving forward. But it's going to come down to money and it's going to come down to a variety of other sort of issues, particularly when you're trying to put spending caps on. And I think that was the thing about the debt ceiling is, you know, in the background, sort of one of the things that sort of came out while defense spending wasn't touched directly. Um, you know, it's it's a warning sign in terms of whether the U.S. is going to continue to be willing to to fund um, Ukrainian war efforts at the levels that it has been in the past. Peter, last word with you and the survey result. I wanted to get your thoughts. So it's a 50 50. Wow. That, that's more or less where the market's at. Nobody has any idea. Uh, um Peter, the a lot of focus, of course, always on and as it should be, China, Asia's biggest economy, the second biggest economy in the world, maybe the first when you take it on purchasing power parity and so forth. But um, Japan seems to be the one we should be paying a bit more attention to. Your thoughts from the economic outlook of Japan. Obviously, we've had the big story with the yen weakness this year, but everything seems to be moving in a positive direction there after some decades of, of stagflation and, and challenge. Your thoughts just wrap us up today on that outlook for Japan. Well, a quick history lesson, Sean. If we look back in history, at 1989, 39,000 for the yen, and then it crashed to 8,000. Oh, the Nikkei, here. you mean? Oh, the Nikkei, sorry, pardon me, the Nikkei. And now it's 31,641. It's just been absolutely on fire. And uh, the last couple of months have been electric since really Christmas. So uh, the Japanese economy, I think we've given up a little bit of steam on the yen back at 140. And you might see it back around, you know, that 141, 142, but it's going to be choppy. But the overall momentum to the upside for the for the Nikkei has just been extraordinary. And I've Think in a lot of ways it'll probably continue. There seems and to be the a ultra lot of easing policy will continue. On yeah, the I think so. I'm, I'm not looking for any surprises in the short run. Inflation's not really that much of a concern, and they've got. I think it's just booming at the moment domestically. I spoke to Tokyo the other day, and the general mood on the street is one of uh, a, a fair degree of positive tone. So there, there's the momentum at the moment. Let's see what happens globally with equities over the summer. And uh, if there's a washout, then it'll take Tokyo with it. But I, 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 it's too early to call that yet. I was driving into work yesterday and there was a there was talking about, as it is this time of year, travel, expats leaving the, the, the hot gulf and so on. And it was like, where is the destination of, of choice this year? There's always one place, the new trendy place where people are going to. And the uh, travel expert said, it looks like it's Tokyo. Everybody seems to want to go to Japan. Uh, uh, that was uh, his take. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Why wouldn't it? At, at 100 or 140 yen to the dollar, probably some oh. good value. 
Absolutely, Sean. It's a great city to travel to, and it's the you know thirty fourth million people make up Greater Tokyo. So it's yeah, it's exciting, and uh, everyone should visit it. We'll have to wrap it up there again. The sort of uh, stubborn oil price hanging in its mid seventies. It's it's new barnacle on a rock, and unless there's something quite significant, uh, it doesn't look like it's going to change. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. Um, Rad Al Qadiri in Washington D.C. Thank you so much. Narendra Tanesia in New Delhi. Thank you so much. And Peter McGuire in Sydney. We're all around the world this morning in 30 minutes. Not too many people doing that on podcasts. Thank you, guys. All the best.